0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Is today's corporate world still operating under the greed is good? shareholder value is king rubric, or has there been a shift reflecting the need for corporations to respond to the needs of all their stakeholders? Alan Murray uses his 40 years of experience to address this possible shift. He spent 20 years at the Wall Street Journal as deputy managing editor, Washington bureau chief, and executive editor online. In addition, he was president of the Pew Research Center and is now the CEO of Fortune Media. From these experiences, he is constantly in touch with CEOs and executives from the top U.S. corporations and has unusual insight. We are the beneficiaries of this in his latest book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. I am delighted we will get to explore whether this shift is merely good PR for corporate America or represents the potential for a paradigm shift benefiting employees, communities, and our country. Alan, welcome to Just the Right Book.
1: Oh, Roxanne, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be on your podcast and salute you for everything you do for the book business.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Alan. So before we talk about tomorrow's capitalism, yeah. why don't we talk about today's capitalism? Sure. And I know you're often talking to other business journalists and business audiences. So what I want to do is start with the very basic, and that is how would you define capitalism and how would you define the approach that the economist Milton Friedman had to the role of a corporation.
1: Yeah, so so look, capitalism is just using the market economy for the distribution of goods and services and and Milton I studied economics when I was in graduate school and sort of the classical view of how an economy works. And Milton Friedman had this kind of very strong and fairly simplistic view, which is greed can be harnessed to the public good. So if if you as a company go out and make money for your shareholders and you do it within the guidelines set by government, you don't break the law, you don't commit fraud, um, you you deal with the regulatory burdens or or requirements that government places on you that if you do that within that within the correct framework, it'll end up being good good for society and mm-hmm. and frankly, in a very broad sense, Roxanne, there's a lot of evidence that that's true. I mean, think about the last thirty years of human history we had the greatest alleviation of poverty in the history of the world because one country, primarily China, adopted market economics and and lifted 800 million people out of poverty. So at a very big, broad level, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of evidence that the Milton Friedman thesis is true. But I think there are also a lot of problems with it. And that's what tomorrow's capitalist is all about.
0: So what do you think has driven uh, the change and how would you Define the change that you have seen. Well,
1: well, the changes I would define it, and, and Roxanne, let me be really clear about this. I've been a journalist. I'm CEO now, but I came to this as a journalist. Been a journalist literally since I was nine years old, and I always thought my job was not to change the world, but to mm-hmm. explain the world. Right. So I come at this trying to change the way the world works. I came at it because in in my job having the opportunity to talk to a lot of the people who run large corporations i started over the last decade hearing very different things in terms of the way they talked about their responsibilities to society it was it was a dramatic change and and so the book was my attempt to understand why what had changed why had the Milton Friedman thesis you just go out there and make your money and let the government take care of of social problems why had that thesis failed what Mm. was different today than it was 20 years ago and that's what the book is all about and and I can I mean there are a number of reasons but I, I can cite a couple of them very quickly first of all I think generational change is a part of it I mean when I look at my father I know he went to work to make money, period. You know, if he wanted to do good in the world, he went to church, he went to his service clubs, the Rotary Club, whatever, but he went to work to make money and support his family. When I talk to my children, who are 30 and 32, they want the money, thank you very much, but they really see their employer as their primary connection to the world, and they want to know they're working for somebody who's doing good in the world. It's really, really important to them. So there's been a generational shift. Mm -hmm. I think social media is part of the story. Social media has put companies and CEOs in particular under a, uh, put them in a fishbowl, basically. Everybody sees how they're acting, what they're doing all the time, and that puts greater pressure on them to be acting in a way that makes people feel they're doing good in the world. So I think that's part of it. I think the nature of business has changed, you know, 50 years ago the way to make money in business was to own a big factory or to own oil in the ground or to have a big story with inventory on the shelves. It was physical stuff. But in today's economy, it's much more about intellectual property and brand value and things that are are generated by people. And so human beings have become more at the center of creating corporate value. And that means corporations have had to pay more attention to human beings. And we can go into that in more detail. But then the last thing is government's just failed. Yeah. yeah. I, I think a lot of these, a lot of these CEOs have moved their position because the things that government is supposed to deal with, training people so they can take on new jobs, climate change, uh, inequality in the economy. It's just uh, we unfortunately in the US today have a political system that makes it, and we're seeing an example of it right now, hard, if not impossible, for people of goodwill from both parties to sit down and try and find common sense solutions that people want. So I think all of those play into what's happening.
0: So, Alan, as I was reading the book, and for the benefit of our audience, which I think may or may not know this, I mean I have spent 33 years as a bookseller but I spent 20 years in the finance world We're in New York I was <laughs> I I and I still am I I was and still am but I become more cynical about capitalism the older I get. I think it's supposed to go the reverse, but I I think what's that saying about if you're not a liberal when you're, and, and, and I am liberal, but I believe in the good that a business operating can do. But as I was reading the book, two macro themes came at me, and then a couple of micro themes that I want to make sure we get to. The macro theme is, I think that you have a quote in the book that you're confident that capitalism has proven itself the best system mankind has conceived to organize human activity, create prosperity, and eliminate poverty. And yet we have the government, and the government, as you say, is now at a at a stalemate at at best, without getting in, into any ideological conversation. So one of the macro issues to me is, okay, so where do you draw this line between the role of business and the role of government? Because are businesses out of their profits going to pave roads or take care of those that need government assistance? Or is it that the corporation, you know, this theory of raising all ships, that by being out there and doing good in the world. So I want to address that. And then the other part that I'd like us to address is I'm cynical about the fact that corporations can sustain purpose over profit. The market has not shown itself to be very forgiving of a long-term strategy for corporations. They, you know, they historically punish corporations for slow outcomes. So let's start with the government versus the business's role.
1: Yeah, and and look, I was, I was trained in classical economics. By the way, let me start one step before that. I appreciate the fact that you say you are, I can't remember if you said cynic or skeptic, but let's pretend you said skeptic, <laughs> yeah. I'm a skeptic too. I'm a journalist, it's my tribe, that's what we it, do.
0: It's your job.
1: Uh, I, it is my job, and sometimes people say we we uh, venture over into uh, cynicism. But so I, I appreciate that, and there's certainly no question greed and corruption have 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 not been uh, eradicated from the face of the earth. But but here's the thing: in my perfect world, in your perfect world, you would have a government that could address things like. Uh, climate change right in fact there's a pretty simple way we all know what the right answer to this is you you put a tax on carbon emissions you put a tax on companies or or energy sources that pollute the environment and you'll get less of them it's become pretty clear the government's not going to do that at least in the US and so given that what do we want companies to do and and let me say Raxanne I don't I don't think this new a uh, new approach that I'm seeing in many companies is by any means a silver bullet or solves mm-hmm. all of the problems but but given a world where the government isn't addressing these problems what should companies do should right. they say oh well you know we'll just continue to pollute and make as much money as we can or should they try and help come up with the solution and, and I see more and more companies that are doing the second. Let me just give you a couple of of examples that I think are striking. In January of 2021, the CEO of General Motors, Mary Barra, said she was only going to make electric cars by 2035. That was a stunning statement. I mean, the electric vehicle market at that time was like, what, 2%? It was tiny, tiny, tiny. There was no economic logic that said, that was the right thing to do. But she had become convinced it was the right thing to do because of what was happening in the world. She had also become convinced, by the way, that there were a lot of people out there willing to support her because they were all supporting Tesla and Tesla was doing very well in the market. Thank you very much. But that was the first time that a car company did something like that, not because regulators told them to, but because they felt in the long term it was the right thing to do and would benefit them. Walmart no one thinks of walmart in bentonville arkansas as a woke c- corporation right but walmart went w- walmart went out to its suppliers and and said you need to start thinking about the the environmental impact of what you're doing and and got 4000 of its suppliers to agree to reduce carbon emissions over the course of the next few years with the goal of taking a gigaton of emissions out of the environment. That's huge. That's as powerful as most regulatory schemes. I mean, Walmart suppliers, many of them get most of their sales from Walmart, so they'll do what Walmart asks. Another example was when Putin invaded Ukraine, Mm -hmm. right? And, And within three weeks, Hundreds of companies had shut down their Russian operations, again, not because of sanctions, but because they felt this was the responsible thing to do. So and and that nothing like that had ever happened before. I mean, the only comparable example was when companies put pressure on South Africa to end apartheid apartheid. That was a very slow 15 year process, as you know. So it's not really comparable to what happened in three weeks. So, all of these things, these kind of unprecedented examples of businesses stepping in, again, they don't solve the problem. And it doesn't mean there aren't some other businesses out there taking advantage of the situation. But I do think it's a, and I know this from many, many conversations it's thoughtful business leaders who are saying, hey, the government's not dealing with these things. B. There are a lot of people, including my employees and my customers, who want me to deal with these things. And C. In the long run, if I don't deal with them, I can't survive as a company.
0: Yeah. So, Alan, I think that's those are great examples. There's Dick Sporting Goods making the decision on on gun policy that affected retail. But I still want, you know, the the flip side of it is like I get frustrated when I read about Apple or other companies in China willing to agree to the censor rules in China in order for them to do business in China. You know, there's, there's a quote from someone that the American psyche is very aligned to doing the right thing. Under the most adverse and urgent of circumstances, <laughs> but not necessarily in the in the running the train. And so, when I think about the pandemic, when I think about the Ukraine invasion by Putin, those fit into the. You know what? I'm on the team. I I'm going to do that. But when I think about two. Counter things, I wonder how we're going to get past that. So, one is there's a quote that's one of my favorite quotes from Reinhold Niebuhr. And the quote is Man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. So, let's substitute regulations for democracy. The business world does not want their hands tied by a highly regulated environment. So how do you see the role of the regulatory environment? You know, you wrote a book about the 1987 Reform Act. That was a bill that I was still An accountant and worked with Ways and Means and Senate Finance on that bill. And I think it's the last thoughtful juxtaposition of economic reform. And corporate motivation that we've seen, probably. I don't know if you would agree with that, Alan.
1: No, I think that may be true. It's so down in Gucci Gulch. I have. I hope you can order a few. It's still in print. You can order a few copies. Put it on the shelves of your bookstore. It, it's a great book, but it, it's a book about a world that doesn't exist anymore because that was where the, the policy apparatus in Washington, in its crude way. Was actually uh, working towards a bipartisan solution that benefited people. And, and, and look, you're right. I mean, that's the way the world should work. You know, Roxanne, what I what some people say to me is, "Well, you say government has failed, and so businesses are trying to do better, but aren't businesses the reason that government has failed? Mm. You know, isn't it business lobbying that, and they're clearly cases where that's true in fact i i've said to the uh, folks at the business roundtable wait a minute you're talking about your social responsibility and you're talking about the environment and what you're doing for uh, inequality and diversity, equity, and inclusion. But surely tax paying is a responsibility. <laughs> and you have armies yeah. of lobbyists in Washington whose job seems to be to, to uh, combat any effort to do anything to increase corporate taxes. So I, I definitely think there's some inconsistencies there. And there are clearly areas where regulation would be helpful. I think smart regulation in the environmental area is probably ultimately going to be necessary. But I guess the question I keep asking is, you mentioned Shodanakuchi and I spent the first half of my career in Washington and mm. got very frustrated with the increasing inability of people of goodwill on both sides of the aisle to get together to solve problems that people wanted to be solved. And then I started watching what was happening in business. Is is it a perfect solution? No. Is greed still there? Yes. Is corruption still there? Yes. But is it good that they're making more of an effort than they did 10 or 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. I think think so. I mean, on, on something like the environment, I see real progress being made by business action. Way more progress in the US than government has been able to make until the passage of the of the IRA. So again, it's not a these are complex issues, and this is not a solution to everything, but surely we should be happy that companies are thinking more seriously about mm-hmm. long-term implications and about the social impact of their of their actions.
0: and I'll cover one more skeptical thing, and then I want to get to the positive thing because i I do think it's worthwhile for us to think about the things that are going right. but the the last piece I want to bring up that makes me skeptical is the uh, CEO compensation in nineteen sixty five had a ratio of 20 to 1 to the average corporate employee. And as of 2021, that relationship is 399 to 1 with average CEO compensation of 15 million.6. Now, ironically, some of the reform that the government did aligning performance, stock performance with uh, productivity of an executive turned out to be, you know, the biggest boon to CEO compensation that could have ever happened because the stock market has been wild, even as employees' wages have not kept up. In these conversations, I mean, the front of the Wall Street Journal today said CEO compensation was down for the first time ever, but it was like a tiny little baby tenth of a percent or or something that was down. Do you see CEOs getting serious about improving the wages and the relationship of executive wages to employees? Do you see anything serious going on there
1: well, I think there's some serious things. Uh, look, you, you're you're picking all the right issues to be skeptical about. I do think uh, CEO pay has gotten obscene. Uh, now, it, it, to be fair, it's not just CEOs. I mean, it's athletes. It's all sorts of high performing uh, people. Yeah. And uh, the other problem with the CEO world is it's not just the high performers. It seems to be the low performers. Too. Well, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it's not I mean, wasn't Michael there, Jordan.
0: <laughs> excuse me, uh, Alan, but I think I read in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago that there was actually an inverse relationship between the most highly compensated CEOs and corporate <laughs> performance Yeah. Am I making that up?
1: I don't remember that study there, but there are certainly times when it looks that way. I mean, what the story this morning pointed out was that because of the reforms you already referred to, CEOs get most of their stupendous pay in stock options and equity awards. And so when their stock does well, Vicky Holub, the CEO of Occidental Petroleum, is an example. Last year was a great year for oil stocks. So she made her, her pay quadruple, quintupled. And when stocks do poorly, uh, the technology CEOs mentioned in that story, their pay goes down because the value of their stock goes down. So, you know, it's tied to performance in the sense that you believe the CEO actually has something to do with what happens with the stock price. But look, I think this is a huge problem and and to answer your your question no. CEOs are seriously addressing the problem at the bottom of the scale. I can I can point to a number of examples. My favorite is Dan Schulman at PayPal who Right. Uh, a lot of people in call centers. And he did what Milton Friedman would tell you to do, which is you put your call center in a city, you find out what the prevailing wage is in that city, and you pay that, or maybe you pay a little more than that so you can get the best workers. And what Dan Schulman said was, you know what, that's not right. Because in some cases, the prevailing wage in the city isn't enough to live on. And if we want people to really be loyal to us and produce for us. We need to pay them a living wage. So he completely changed the way the company calculated lower pay scales. And you've seen Walmart makes some moves in this direction and others make moves. So I do think good things have happened at the bottom of the scale. Nobody that I know wants to talk about what's happening at the top. Yeah. And this may be the limitations. This is where your cynicism should probably... Kick in. I don't know that we can count on CEOs to be the ones to cut their own salaries. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Well, that's too bad, Alan. I was hoping you were going to tell me that you've had some secret conversations, and even they think their pay is obscene.
1: But I've had some. I've had some CEOs say that to me, but they haven't volunteered to uh, give it up. To give it up. (laughs) To give it up. So. Let's
0: go to some of the good examples. And one of the ones that I really like is, and I'm gonna reveal a bias for a second. I ultimately believe that corporations will improve things because the smart CEOs will find the intersection of what's good for their community and their employees And will improve the profitability or revenue of their business. I I can't see them becoming quasi philanthropic in, in their objectives. So, but one of the ones I loved was what Deanna Mulligan did at Guardian Life that you talk about in the book, because that to me presents a very scalable appealing way for corporations to behave and meet both those those needs
1: yeah this is one of the things that i've found that, and what De- Deanna did was focused on training but you know what what she said to me this was four or five years ago that i had never heard before every company has always known that internally you have to train people to do the jobs you need in the company but she used the phrase training out meaning that when you hired somebody, you would promise to train them and you would make sure that they left the company with more marketable skills than they had when they came in. And I think that's really important. You know, a lot of the CEOs I've talked to over the last few years feel particularly responsible for the fact that the escalator of mobility in our society seems to have stalled. That Mm. people on the bottom have a harder time making it to the middle or the top. Um, right. and that the 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 top or the the top of the middle can become self-perpetuating. And I can go down a long list of CEOs that have taken action, not just to train their own people, but to try and create training programs that will actually create more opportunity for the disadvantaged in society to get the skills they need to get good jobs. IBM's a great example of that. They have a, a, a P-TECH program that trains Thousands of people, some of whom they are, but some of whom they don't. There was a whole group of companies in Chicago, companies like Accenture and Allstate and Hyatt, that band together to create programs to provide opportunities for people in Chicago to get basic education, to get better paying jobs at those companies. And a lot of top tier companies have gone through the process of scrubbing their job applications to eliminate unnecessary college degrees, say, well, let, let's not say you need a degree from a, an expensive school here if you don't really need it. If it's about skills, right. let's name the skills. So there've been a lot of things like that, all designed. And, and look, these, these have, to your point, these have benefits for these companies. If you can open up uh, a skill, a new skill pool for them in a time when they're fighting like mad for talent, it's a good thing for them, but it's also a good thing for society.
0: And Alan, you know, one of the things that we learned during the pandemic was the degree to which remote work can be done. And I've spoken to lots of CEOs who saw early productivity gains that have been given back. And they certainly understand that some work can be done remotely, but they also understand that collaboration, culture building, strategic thinking is going to require, you know, tushes in the chairs in, in the office. So I'm curious what you're seeing, and I'm going to, uh, I'll use two stories. I was talking to a young man the other day who's in his 30s. He works remotely. His company is beginning to say they need to work not remotely. And he said he would leave his job if he couldn't work remotely. I've spoken to other young people, including my son, who believes that the way that they're going to be successful in business is to be there and show up. So what do you think, do you think there's going to be a division where people who are more on the life side of the work-life balance will get to work remotely, but will not have the advancement that they might if they showed up? Or do you think corporations, how do you think corporations are going to deal with this?
1: I I think this is the great question of our times. It's so interesting. I mean, my daughter, my younger daughter is uh, 30 years old. She is in a, a master's degree program in data science from the University of California at Berkeley and doing it 100% remotely. I think she has to go to Berkeley for one day at some point before she gets her degree. And her boyfriend is doing accounting for a chain of schools in North Carolina. And they're both living in in New Orleans. And they, they uh, uh, debate among themselves what city they would like to live in because they believe they can live wherever they want to live and still do what they're doing remotely. I can tell you the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies are increasingly moving away from that vision. There are few exceptions, but not a lot. I've got polling, new polling data that shows the vast majority of them are moving to three days a week, four days a week. And some of them are saying go go back to five days a week. And the reason for that is... is is. It, it it gets back to the nature of the modern corporation. You know, value is created by teams of human beings. And the job of the CEO today is much less about telling people what to do and much more about motivating them, giving them purpose, giving them that North Star, giving them the cohesion they need to work together to get things done, and the vast, vast majority of CEOs I talk to think you can do that better if if you're face-to-face. We are social animals at the end of the day. Something happens when we are together that is more bonding and more cohesive than doing Zoom calls like this. So I, I think we're in for a bit of a, a showdown over the next couple of years because there are a lot of people who want to keep working from home. And if you're good enough and talented enough, somebody's going to hire you. And there are a few companies like Synchrony, which is the financial firm in uh, Stanford, Connecticut, where they're, they are trying to make an advantage of a very loose work from home policy in hopes that they can pull people away from the New York financial firms like Goldman Sachs and, and JP Morgan that are saying you got to be in the office four or five days a week. It, it's amazing to me that we're kind of We've been talking about this for two years and nobody has a clear answer yet because there is a tug of war going on between people who got used to work, you know, working at home and want to keep doing it and, and leaders who believe that to build a strong culture, you need to bring people together. But you highlight a really important issue here, which is if where we end up is that one group of people that probably includes a lot of people who are caregivers for children or for their parents or whatever, and maybe more female than male, decides to stay at home and another group is in the office. If you believe that direct face-to-face interaction matters, are we going to go back to a word where the people in the office get all the opportunities and the people at home yeah. at the short end of the stick?
0: Yeah, and the reason I brought up a man saying that is because what I hope is, as a woman, that the shift, people making the choice of life over work, I'm hoping that that will cross genders, that we will stop buttonholing who is it that's less motivated? Because some of it is practical, right? And I know more and more young people where the husband is the one who has chosen to sort of step off the fast track, work remotely and take on more at home roles. So I I think we probably need to be open-minded about that or the model, which happened for a minute and then pulled back of corporations providing quality child care or support for quality child care, because there is there's a real place where the government has not step to the plate. And corporations, I mean, I'm a little bit on a soapbox here, so I apologize, no. but corporations could reap enormous productivity gains by having quality on-site child care.
1: Yeah. You know, whether corporations can t- take that on, I I don't know, but I agree. Solving the child care problem, solving the elderly care problem is is incredibly important to to solving this bigger problem. I don't see a lot of companies, as much as it might make sense, I don't see a lot of companies rushing in that direction because their benefits costs are already so huge. You know, our healthcare system is so expensive and companies are having to pay so much of the burden of that. So I I, I don't see a big move in that direction. And that's one of those things where you probably need the government to step in and help figure out a a solution. Mm Mm-hmm. By the way, Roxanne, I am I live in Connecticut and I work in New York City. And prior to the pandemic, I came into the city five days a week. I'm never going to do that again, personally. That's just insane. Yeah. It's insane. It's like, you know, three hours a day of lost time.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I happen to ha- have been in the city a lot over the last couple of weeks and a couple of times I drove, and it took me four and a quarter hours to get from New York to New Haven, which can be an hour and 35 minutes.
1: Yep. Yeah, so if you go in the middle of the night and there's no construction on the highway.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, or take the train, which was great. <laughs> So I want to talk about corporations as activists before I get to the subtitle on your book, which I'd like to give you a chance to talk about. We have a great example of a corporation that responded to the will of their employees to become an activist on the issue in Florida in what Disney did, we now have a battle and suits and countersuits between the state of Florida and Disney. So, what do we learn from that about how and if corporations should become activists?
1: Yeah it's been a wild roller coaster of a ride. I mean, 10 years ago, and I can say this as a reporter who whose job it is to try and get CEOs to speak out about controversial issues. 10 years ago, I can tell you the go-to reaction of any employee, of any CEO was to hide under their desks. And I, are you kidding? Transgender access to public bathrooms? I'm going to talk about that. You know, in fact, if you go look at... Uh, when was the the horrible killing in Ferguson, Missouri? Maybe 2014?
0: Yeah. I was going to uh, say even 2012, but I don't think it was that long ago. Some,
1: some, sometime in there. I went back to check my memory on this. I said, did any CEO of any company say anything about that? You you cannot find it. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't directly affect my bottom line. Why would I talk about that? And then compared that by the time we got to George Floyd yeah. In, 2020, every CEO came out and said this is outrageous, et cetera et cetera So there was a huge shift over the course of those eight years. but then I think you're right, Disney and a couple of other events started making CEOs say, well wait a minute, I got to be careful about when I speak out and when I don't. I can't speak out on every controversial issue. In the case of Disney, uh, he he just blew it on all sides you know he didn't say anything for two weeks. Right, this is Bob Chapman. Yeah, he speak at all for two weeks.
0: Ex CEO of Disney.
1: Ex CEO of Disney, and this I think has something to do with why he is the ex CEO mm-hmm. of Disney. He kept his mouth shut for two weeks, and then he said, "Oh, wait a minute, I have to speak." And so he said something. And the reason, and and this gets back to what I was saying about the changing nature of the corporation. That value today is not having plants and oil and inventory. Value is having good people. Who makes the value at the Disney Corporation? who makes the magic? It's the creatives who- Mickey Mouse. (laughs) The people who create Mickey Mouse, those wonderful movies. And Chapik way too late in his career had a meeting with those, he told me about this. He had a meeting with those creatives in Southern California. And the emotion that came out in that meeting because one after the other could recount incidents that happened to them when they were in school, in elementary school or junior high school and were bullied or mistreated and, and the raw emotion that that generated. And he realized these are my most valuable employees and I have to stand up for them. And by the way, Bob Iger seems to be doing the same things. So- mm-hmm. And you haven't asked me yet, but let me go there. This gets to the subtitle of my book, My Search for the Soul of Business. I don't think Milton Friedman would have appreciated the notion of a soul of business. In a world where corporations are more and more reliant on talent and people to create value, They have to reflect human values. That's what's happening here. And so it doesn't mean that you can speak out on everything, but you have to go through the hard work of figuring out what do we really stand for as a corporation? What are the things that are our values? And when those things come along, then we will will stand up and we will step out and we will speak our mind. So it's not gonna be everything because no CEO wants to be caught in the political crossfire the way Bob Chappick was. But it is going to be some things. And, th- and I don't think that's going to end. I think that's part of the humanization of the corporation, which is what this is all about.
0: And so what are the key ingredients, I think, for that to really happen? Is going to be for the market to be a more patient investor? So, you know, I'll characterize that as the tension between the CEO, I'm going to give them all the good stuff you're talking about in the book. Will that investor remain short-term motivated or will the vanguards and the Fidelities and the CalPERS, will they begin to say, no, we really will need to be more patient about the return in order for corporations to do what they need to do to keep their staff and have A-plus teams.
1: I believe it's happening. You're making a reference to the investment community. The whole ESG thing kind of went off the rails in part because nobody really knows what ESG what is. What that even means. What it means, and if they didn't have metrics for it. And so the, yeah. that, that whole thing kind of went off the rails. It feels
0: a little mushy.
1: It's very mushy. And, and by the way, that's part of the issue here. You know, it took us centuries hundreds and hundreds of years to develop hard metrics around shareholder capitalism so we could hold companies accountable and know how we're actually doing based on those metrics we're just at the very beginning of developing stakeholder metrics and you're going to need those for this to reach maturity so that you can hold companies accountable for their words and and see how they're doing but but here's what i believe, based on my years of of reporting and interviewing on this topic, that increasingly companies that do the right thing on the environment, that do the right thing towards their employees, are being rewarded by employees. First of all, they get the best talent. Uh, By customers, second, you're starting to see customers you start, particularly younger people, pay more attention about the records of the people they buy their goods and and services from, and now to some degree by investors, and so you see more and more research that shows that companies that pay attention to these to social impact
0: mm-hmm. over the
1: long term perform better. They do perform, yeah. and that's why you know some investors are moving in this direction. Again, not to change the world, but to make more money. This is a better, it's a good long-term investment strategy because the companies that care about this in the long term are the ones that are going to survive and thrive. So I believe it's happening. I wish it was happening faster. I wish we had better metrics in order to measure it and hold companies accountable for what they say. Mm -hmm. I think all of that is going to take time, but I'm very convinced that the direction of change is going to continue
0: hmm You know, one of the things I thought about reading your book is, you know, there ends up being an ironic outcome in some cases. So let's take John Mackey and Whole Foods. So John Mackey was an early corporate guy who operated with a very purposeful, thoughtful way of thinking about his community, his employees, and, you know, built Whole Foods to be a incarnation of that vision. So successful that he sold it to Amazon.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Amazon, so the reward in the long term was to John Mackey and the other shareholders, uh, but Amazon is not known I mean, I have my own pet peeve about Amazon, but even on a factual basis, they're not known. They're not fitting into your soul of America notion. So how is that paradigm going to get upended that the reward for doing it the right way is that you get sold to someone who won't?
1: Yeah. Well, I agree with you about Amazon historically. I also think, you know, if you trace Amazon's history by reading the letters that Jeff Bezos wrote every year, your buddy Peter Alson has published a book on that, I think. If you trace that, what you will see in the last few years, they at least started talking about social impact and stakeholder issues. So even Amazon at some point has gotten the memo. Now, whether uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whether it's just for public relations reasons, or whether they really believe it, but I, I, have I've gotten to know the new CEO a little bit. I think he, I think he understands why, in in a talent based business like his, uh, it's important. But yeah, are there going to be exceptions? Are are there going to be every time some well meaning company sells its uh, coal plants? There's going to be some bottom scammer who says, well, I can make a lot of money off of coal uh, yeah. and buys it. Uh, no question. Uh, I mean, that's why, This, as I said, at the end of the day, this isn't a panacea and it, w- it would be helpful to have smart, sane government putting some guardrails around the whole system. But I do think it's a move in a better direction and it's a move in a better direction because companies have to be, paying more attention to the needs of people and planet if they are going to succeed in the long run.
0: Mm. So Alan, let's end on this note because I've been cynical, skeptical uh, and, and, and you've been, and I love uh, you for it, Roxanne. Yeah. Well, thank you. (laughs) And, and I think it, think you've been very thoughtful in your response, but you are the guest and you are uh, the author of a book that I think all of us ought to be reading because our thousands and thousands of listeners are employees, they're CEOs, they're Zoomers. Uh, people who are working remote. So, what I'd like to do is give you the last word to speak to our listeners about the role that they can play or how they can pay attention to. Making sure that this trend both continues and conceivably can be accelerated.
1: Boy, I, I really appreciate you doing that, Roxanne. And and look, I, I think one of the things that I learned in exploring this is that that people don't understand the power that they have. They don't understand the right. degree, You know, every time I ask the CEO, why are you talking like this? What 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 got into you? Didn't you get the Milton Friedman memo? Uh, the first answer they always gave me is because my employees want me to. So I don't think employees understand how much influence they have in this situation. I don't think customers understand your buying choices can make such a difference. It's hard to figure out what's a responsibly created product and what's not. But... You start sending signals uh, with your pocketbook and companies will respond very quickly. That's the beauty of capitalism. If companies have to attract talent and they have to attract customers, they're going to pay attention to what you want. That's what right. they do. That's what makes the market work. So so I don't think anyone should underestimate their ability and their power to, to uh, change the equation.
0: Well, and I, I appreciate that because- you know i sometimes in letter in the what i call the dear reader that we send out to our customers and it goes to i don't know about 40,000 people is you know i believe that we can each make an impact in little way you know we're not going to all cure cancer but the the quote i i don't know whether i made it up or stole it so uh, <laughs> i'll just say it but how we live is the world we get. And so if we tolerate this stuff in our legislators or our companies that we do business with, you know, I'm going to go back to that Niebuhr quote. You know, people are, are, are not necessarily going to always do the right thing. And so we've been talking with Alan Murray, who's the author of, Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. And I think it gives us a, a, sort of a roadmap, Alan, about how we can live to get a world that's better than the corporate world uh, that we've seen. So I appreciate you starting the conversation. I I certainly appreciate all the work that Fortune Media does in polling people and getting the story out. You know, you do a podcast, you do a daily newsletter, which seems a little crazy to me, but (laughs) I appreciate uh, the work that you do. And let's hope when we talk in a year or two with your next book that we will have seen an acceleration.
1: Well, thank you. And I hope the same thing. I hope you're right.
0: Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at R.J. Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this— Can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.